Uh, it's wonderful to be back. Sorry I disappeared without telling you, but I, we went on a bit of a secret mission. Um, I can't tell you, but if you ask Greg, you can beat it out of him. He'll tell you. <laughs> we had an amazing trip with uh, some of our brothers and sisters, two our brothers and sisters, and uh, love to tell you where, but for the safety of the church in that nation, we, we need to keep that a secret, but I can tell you what, God is alive and well in all different parts of the world, and he reigns, and he is at work, and he's building his church. Man, the testimonies we heard. We'll never forget what God is doing and how God is calling people from darkness into his marvelous light from all kinds of different walks of life, from Satanism, from Islam. Man, it's just such a blessing. So it's been quite a wild week. Uh, been on, I told some the other evening, I feel like I've been on spiritual cocaine this week, coming back from an amazing, an amazing experience. And uh, so glad that I can share with you this morning something uh, from God's Word, and I'll weave some, I'll weave some of the stories in uh, when I can find my sermon. It was here a minute ago. But uh, while, we're, while I'm looking for that, it's just uh, some of the common denominators of uh, many of the testimonies that we heard. And uh, I, I got home and I, and I submitted my article for the, um, for the highlight very late but Denise is very um, gracious to allow me to slip it in. Uh, some of that, and I wrote them there, so you can pick up some of that in the, in the Highlight magazine. But whew, dreams and visions. God is speaking to people. God is revealing himself through dreams and visions. He's speaking in audible voices and drawing people uh, to himself. These are consistent. We've heard these testimonies for years, and uh, it's still happening. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And, um, and also the fact that when somebody in a family comes to faith, uh, and we can't even begin to appreciate and understand the trauma, the challenge, the, uh, the agony, because when someone in the Muslim world comes to Christ, they are disowned in most cases. And if not put to death, they are chased out of the home and out of the community. But when they come to faith, their testimony and their lifestyle is so authentic that those who were persecuting them, those who were hating them, those who were accusing them of betraying the family and the community, they come to faith. And we've heard stories of, of family units coming to faith. Uh, and and, and the, the church is exploding all over the place. Um, so we are, our view is so small. I was thinking... Uh, Along these lines, you know, as we read in Acts 2, and the Lord add to the number daily those who are being saved. That's the reality. That's the reality. And may that become more and more of a reality for us uh, in our own context. And as we continue to study in Acts, we are in chapter 11, the second part of chapter 11. And, and what we read in Acts is what we see in the church. It's what we see in the church the broad church of the Lord Jesus Christ, everywhere. So let me read from verse 19. The, the, the beginning of chapter 11 is really a summary 
of um, what happens in chapter 10, the house of Cornelius, Peter going to Cornelius' house, and Peter is relaying this to the, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, and so he starts to tell them that. But um, let's pick it up from verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of key words and phrases in, in, this, in this text. Those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Remember, Stephen was martyred, first, first martyr. Those who had been scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, so to Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord from darkness to light. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now we've met Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and we will see more testimony about him here. So Barnabas goes to Antioch to, to, to see what's going on. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad... And true to his nickname, he encouraged them. Remember, Barnabas means son of encouragement. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Here's more testimony about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul comes from Tarsus. That's where he, it's his place of origin. And when Barnabas found Saul, his name hasn't changed to Paul yet, but when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Beautiful, eh? For a whole year. They were in Bible school. The disciples, end of verse 26, were called Christians first at Antioch. So the name that we use today started at a place called Antioch in the first century AD. Little Christians, disciples of Christ. During this time, Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Everybody's coming down to Antioch to find out what's going on. God's at work. Things are happening. One of them, a prophet named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And in brackets, Luke puts for us this happened during the reign of Claudius, Emperor Claudius. The disciples, verse 29, and here's another significant phrase, each according to his or her ability decided to provide provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And uh, one other wonderful, just little 
passage of scripture revealing to us more of the, the story, our story, the story of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from its infancy, from its early beginnings. And I'm calling this message today, The Sun Rises, and hopefully you'll, you'll understand why as we go through, but I have to admit that I didn't come up with this title. Um, this is a title from uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. Anybody read or heard Dr. William Lane Craig besides Greg? Nobody. We're going to have to do some evangelism here. He's an apologist. He's a great, great scholar and a godly man. And he's got a book about the resurrection called The Sun Rises, and it's S-O-N, of course, not S-U-N. And I thought, oh, how appropriate when I was thinking of uh, how to capture the, the, the message of what's going on here. So the sun rises. The work of God grows. Just, you know, you hear about the guy who got up early waiting for the sun to rise and suddenly it dawned on him? You heard that one? Hey, dad jokes are the in thing at the moment, so I'm, I'm going to cash in on dad jokes. But it's, it's like that, you know, you, it's, suddenly it's daylight. It's, it's, you wait, wait, and boom. It's amazing. And, and this is what God is doing. This is how the church is growing. This is how God is revealing himself. So let's pull out some, some lessons that we can apply. And hopefully as we study God's word, as we draw truth out of God's word, out of this deep, deep, thirst-quenching well of truth, we will, as we're enabled by the Holy Spirit, also apply these truths to our lives. So, the first point, God uses, our, the points are very long this morning, I'm sorry about that. God uses our suffering and persecution to accomplish his kingdom purpose through us. That's a mouthful. God uses our suffering and persecution to accomplish his kingdom purpose through us. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, his martyrdom, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So they flee persecution. They, they scatter. The picture here is... Uh, Similar to, you know, the sower, you take the seed and you, you scatter it far and wide. Have you heard of the term the diaspora? The, uh, we've heard of the African diaspora. Well, the word actually comes from here, from the scattering. It's the Greek word for, for scattering, that throwing far and wide. And, and, and through persecution, God spreads his church and scatters his gospel far and wide. And it's very important for us as God's people, as we need to prepare for more opposition, more persecution, more challenge in our own country uh, regarding the gospel. We need to understand so that we're not taken by surprise that God is at work even in all these things. God is at work even in all these things. The work of God continues. And again, the testimonies we heard, sorry I'm putting my hands in my pocket, but I'm, I'm about to put on my beanie, it's so cold. Um, if I slow down and my speech slows down, come put on the beanie because my brain is actually <laughs> freezing over. Um, again, the testimonies we heard is how God is using persecution to spread the gospel. And as we were talking to a pastor on this recent trip, 
who comes from a very Islamic country, and we were asking him, what's it like to be a Christian in that country? Here's how he started his answer. Something along these lines. And I have to, I laugh at my, I smile and I laugh at myself when our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church answer our questions because they just have a different way of seeing things. He said, the good thing, that's not what I was expecting, the good thing about a radically Muslim country, there's something good in there. Our brothers and sisters are suffering, they're in prison, they're being starved to death, chased out of the country. No, the good thing about a radically Muslim country is that people see the real face of Islam. So when a country is in the grips of Islam, there's no PR going on. There's no nice face. There's the reality. And people leave Islam in droves because they see the real face of Islam. You can go online and and hear reports from Muslim leaders around the world, different parts of the world, who in their own words are speaking about an avalanche of apostasy. I mean, they referred to that, you know, when people leave Islam, um, that's apostasy in their, according to their definition, but they are talking about an avalanche of apostasy. And they are telling us, these are their numbers. Various people will say between 21 and 24% of Muslim youth, so let's say a quarter of Muslim youth are leaving Islam every year. 1.7 billion Muslims in the world and a quarter of them are leaving every year. They are in panic. And if they are saying between 21 and 24%, you can bet your life it's higher than that. So, uh, at least a couple amens. I mean, I I was actually expecting a hallelujah or two (laughs) for that. But um, God uses our suffering and persecution to accomplish his purpose, his kingdom purpose, through us. What we were also reminded about on this trip was what happened in the 300s AD. One, two, three centuries, the church is going like a Boeing. Oh, that's not, you can't use it anymore because Boeing doesn't really go much. But, I mean, it was really really taking off. And then along came a Roman emperor called Constantine, who on his way to his battle reportedly had a vision of a cross in the clouds, and he decided to become Christian and to make, um, to, to, he didn't make the empire Christian, but he, 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 he brought an end to persecution against Christians from the Roman Empire. The next guy that came came along, the next emperor, Theodosius, he declared Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire. And that's when everything went pear-shaped. That was the worst thing that could have happened to the church. Why? Because now we're legit and we're Christians because the emperor says so. There's no personal faith, there's no conversion, there's no work of the Holy Spirit. Now it's an institution, 
and that I'm, I'm born a Christian. I don't know if you ever remember hearing Dr. X. Matthews saying, just because you're born in a biscuit tin doesn't make you a lemon cream. You remember that one? Being born in a Christian country doesn't make anyone a Christian. What does Jesus say? Going to be born from above. Born of the Spirit. So institutionalism kills the church. But persecution refines the church. And the suffering that we go through, what does James say? Counted joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, you've got to be crazy to be able to say that. But he's saying that because his experience and the testimony of believers throughout the centuries is the faithfulness of God in the midst of persecution. Yes, sometimes we're still tempted to think God's abandoned us, God's forgotten about us. had a wonderful conversation with a lady this week who was questioning the existence of God on the basis of severe trial and suffering. And that's absolutely, hey, we had the conversation. That's good. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. But God uses our suffering and he uses persecution to accomplish his kingdom purpose through us. And what is his kingdom purpose? I will build my church. That's his kingdom purpose. I will build my church. I'll reveal my glory. I will. I'm, I mean, it goes right back to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. But let's just push this truth a little further. Pardon me. Let's go back to the, the uh, because this is this Exodus narrative, the, the story of the Old Testament and the people getting to Egypt through Joseph and leaving East Egypt through Moses. And it's a major, major theme uh, in Scripture. When they arrived in Egypt, they were given the land of Goshen, great, fertile, prosperous place to live, and they thrived there. Was it God's plan for Israel to stay in Egypt? Was that the game plan? What was the promise to Abraham? I will bring you back to this land, the land of Canaan. I'll bring you back here and I'll make you a nation. Can you count those stars up there, Abraham? No. Well, that's what your nation's going to be like. How about the sand? Can you count the sand? Grains of sand? No. I'm going to give you a great nation. But they had to get out of Egypt. And so what did God allow? He allowed a megalomaniac... He loves using megalomaniacs, whether they're Putin or Pharaoh or whoever. He loves using them. Saddam Hussein or pick pick a pick a megalomaniac. There, there, there's a lot of them on the market. He uses some nut job to cause suffering so that his people start to cry. What do they cry to God? Help us! I got to keep talking to you because otherwise you're going to freeze over as well. So. Help us! Save us! Deliver us! 
And what does God say? Thank you for asking. That's what I was going to do, but I want you to ask. Have you noticed that in your life? God knows what we need. We think we know what we need, but God knows what we need. But he waits for for us to ask him. What does God say in Genesis 2? It's not good for man to be alone. Did Adam know that yet? Not a chance. We're slow, you know, we're dwarf. So God made him go through a process of naming the animals, and Adam notices something. He notices a pattern. There's a pattern forming here, God. What's the pattern Adam notices? Male and female. Lord, thank you for asking. I will provide a helper suitable for him. So God knows what we need before we ask him. That's what scripture says. But he wants us to ask. To ask. Ask. Seek. Knock. So they call out. They cry out for deliverance. And what does God do? He reveals his power. And he delivers them. And again, don't forget, this, this motif, this theme, the Exodus story, the narrative, is the template for salvation. Joshua, the one who leads him into the promised land, Joshua and Jesus share the same name in Hebrew. When Gabriel speaks to Mary, I'm sure, I'm sure the angel, I'm sure he could speak English, I'm sure he could speak Greek, Aramaic, French, you know, whatever, but she was a young Jewish girl, so he would either speak Aramaic or Hebrew, probably Aramaic. And he'd said to her, you will, he didn't say Jesus, that's a, that's a Greek version. He said, you will name him Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And so God reveals himself as the deliverer, the rescuer, His name, Yeshua, literally means God, our Savior, God, our salvation. Secondly, God uses kingdom-minded servants to do his work. If we're going to serve God, we've got to do it his way. We can't build our own kingdom. We can't fulfill our own agenda. So many people I meet along the way, they they use Christianese, but they're on their own mission. God uses kingdom-minded servants to do his work. Look at verses 22 and 26. News of this, what's going on? The gospel is being preached. People are coming to faith, even Gentiles. Remember that cork pops out of the bottle in 10, Acts 10, with, with Cornelius and his family coming to faith, and the fulfillment, which continues to this day, and the, we're a part of that, is you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in the ends of the earth, make disciples of all nations. Acts 10 is where the gospel reaches the Gentiles. And that's why we're here this morning, because the gospel reaches the Gentiles. Hello, Gentiles. <laughs> Fellow Gentiles, good to see you. So news of this amazing thing that God's doing in verse 22 reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. By the way, there's a whole bunch of Antiochs. Um, this, this is the main Antioch, but don't get confused, there's a whole bunch of them. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, what was the evidence of the grace of God? People coming to faith, yeah, people getting saved. 
Gentiles coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the witness of Jews. Now you know God's at work. Now you know this is the God thing. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas said, I'm going to set up shop here, and I want to start my own church, and I'm going to make it rich. I want to make it big. What did he do? He went out of his way to go look for Saul. Saul didn't even know what was going on here. But Barnabas said, I know just the man for the job. I know just the man for the job. It's not my kingdom. I'm not in competition with anyone. It's not my church. Please don't ever ask me how it's going with my church. It's going really badly. Because I don't have one. There's only one church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Barnabas is kingdom-minded because he thinks, what, how, we've got to teach, we've got to disciple these people. I know just the man for the job. I don't know if he Ubered a chariot or what. Probably walked. He found him. So he had to look for him. He found him and brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul met with the church, not the building, with the people, the saints, and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, and the title or the label was actually a derogatory one. It's interesting when you look at even church denominations, how the names of different denominations were actually given them by other people as a way to mock or derogatory, uh, sort of, you know, um, a slight on people. But they are, you know, it's like those nicknames you hate, and they follow you around for your whole life, you know, and you try to keep them a secret, and then somehow they leak out. And it's the ones you don't want sometimes to, to follow you around. But so Christians, we, we, they didn't decide we're going to have a church meeting, let's vote, you know, put it to the vote, what we're going to call ourselves. They already had a name, and they were the people of the way. They were saints. But they were called Christians because, and literally, literally in the text, in the, in the Greek, it's disciples of Christ. Followers of Christ. And why would anybody call anybody that? Because they had a church membership certificate? No, because they saw the lifestyle. They examined the lifestyle and, they're, oh, they just, they're these little Christians. They're these little Christs. They, they look and sound and behave. Is this getting uncomfortable for you? It's getting uncomfortable for me. They look and sound and behave just like Jesus. Just like Jesus Christ. But this great work was done because Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul, were kingdom-minded. Man, what a blessing Barnabas is, not just was, is because we're still reading about him. We're still learning about him. We're still being challenged to be people of encouragement. And look at the next outflow of this. 
So they're called Christians. Yay, we're Christians. We're Christians. Let's sit back and wait for Jesus. No, during this time, some prophets, those with a gift of prophecy, this is not Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and stuff. There's a New Testament people who God enables to speak a word of warning or uh, encouragement to a body of believers. During this time, some prophets came down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. That's going to be a devastating famine. You see, from day one, the church was involved in relief work, and it was inspired and enabled by the Holy Spirit. A severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius, tells us historian Dr. Luke. Look at verse 29. The disciples, each according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. Were they told that you have to bring this many shekels? No. No. What is God putting on your heart to share? You know what, as, as, as believers and as people involved in, in serving the Lord and uh, as pastors and church leaders, we need to learn to trust the Holy Spirit. We don't have to manipulate people. We don't have to brainwash them. We don't have to coerce. We don't have to nag. We don't have to preach a sermon before the offering. You won't find a precedent for that in Scripture. Ooh, here's a problem. Big famine coming. The Holy Spirit has told us through Agabus. Let's get ready for that. How can we help? What can we do? And so they start to strategize and plan. And part of the plan is, everybody give what God's leading you to give, what you're able to give. Isn't that beautiful? Each according to his ability. It's very interesting. I mean, we just spent time looking at the spiritual gifts yesterday with a brand new batch of church members. Very exciting. I'm going to accept them all come in soon. 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the Lord gives each according to his or her ability. Why? Because God has made us. He knows us. He knows our capacity. He knows your capacity. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses. He knows the gifts he's given you. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so now, in response to the goodness of God, give according to your ability. No coercion, no pressure, no manipulation And so they gave. And God enabled them to help people avert a famine. That's that's biblical stewardship. That is so exciting. That is so beautiful. Do we give? Here's now here's the where the techie hits the tar. Do we give to God according to our ability? Time, talent, and treasure. What is my ability? Well, you've got you to talk to the Lord about that. It takes a bit of self-awareness. It takes a bit of prayer and self-searching. Not how much can I afford. When it comes to giving, never ask how much can I afford. Imagine if Jesus asked that question when it came to the cross. How much can I afford to give? What's comfortable for me? 
we wouldn't be here because we would not receive the free gift of life in and through Christ. So what does my, according to my ability, mean for me and my church? And one of the scholars, one of the commentators, pardon me, I referred to says that Luke describes the church in Antioch in terms of its generosity. Isn't that a beautiful thing to be known by? Each one gave according to their ability. It's spontaneous. It's just, it's, it's, so, it's so organic. It's so beautiful what God does. But that's why they were called Christians, because they did these crazy things above and beyond. Uh, Craig Keener makes the comment here that in terms of this name Christian, these little Christ, no one would have guessed how long the name would last. Here we are 2,000 years later. And it's now, you know, it's the name. It's actually, it's, um, it's been abused, that's for sure. But it's still here. Are we little Christs? Are we serving him with all we are and all we have, according to our ability? Third thing, before you totally freeze over, and this also comes out of the text, God targets cities. And this is very important in terms of ministry and missions and outreach. God targets cities as a strategic focus for kingdom building. You'll see what happens in the New Testament. A lot of the time, it's Paul's operating in cities. Is that because God doesn't like country people or rural people? No, it's just very strategic. A city is a, a very high concentration, sometimes too high, too high density, but a very high concentration of people. And typical of big cities these days, uh, you know, the city is full of all kinds of different nations. So it's a very strategic place to reach the nations, to, to make disciples of all nations, because all the nations are there. God, you know, we're so bad at fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. God's brought the nations to us. Because we're arguing about go and who go, and so he brings them to us and we're still failing. You know? But there's, there's really no excuse. So God uses cities. We've got to be strategic in the way that we Operate. And as I mentioned, there are a number of 16 Antiochs in the New Testament uh, in, the, in that era, in that time frame. But this is the third largest Roman city. You've got Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. So it's a very strategic city. And I, I think we need to, I think we need to get really excited about the opportunities we have for gospel ministry in our city. And in our We've got a village here. You, know, you don't have to go 5Ks. I mean, if, if you have to travel more than 5Ks out of this area, unless you live more than 5Ks out of this area, you know, everything's here. But are we targeting? Are we being strategic with, with our community of churches? Are we, are we seeing the opportunities as we rub shoulders with people, as we go to and from work and home and sport and, and whatever? Do we see the field as white and the harvest is ready actually overripe for harvest. We need to see it that way because God is, God is interested in people and he's interested in cities. So let's be strategic. Let's think, let's talk, let's pray, let's, let's continue to strategize and continue to reach out. Now, in order to 
conclude this and try to tie it together, I want to tell you another story about this trip. We were in, in a city, and there is a big hill in the city, and our much ancient cities were built on a hill because it's a great place to build a castle or a fort. It's strategic in terms of defense and everything like that. So we go up to the ruins of this, this, this fort, this castle, and we're looking over the city. I mean, we almost had a 360 view of the whole city from where we were, maybe about 270, but it was, a, it was, a, it was quite cool. And while we're up there, and, and we hadn't really planned it this well, but while we're up there, the evening call to prayer starts echoing out from the mosques, which, by the way, is a very strategic time to pray because that's when Muslims are praying. So we want to, like, intercept, you know, intercept the, the prayers, cross the wires, you know. Um, and, so, and so we were up there uh, looking around but also praying. And I said to, I said to uh, one of the brothers, a local brother, a lovely man who was with us, we discovered we, know, we knew a few you know, songs, hymns, uh, same tune, different, very different words, which is always fun to sing. Different words to the same tune in different languages. So I said to him, do you know the hymn, some of you people will know this, Is My Father's World? Whenever I'm in a persecuted country, going in and out of mosques and, and being inundated with Islam, I always sing in that hymn in my in my head or my heart somewhere there. So I said to him, "Do you know this one?" And he said, "No, he didn't." But he just, you know, on his phone, he went online and he found it. So very softly, because people were moving around us, we had this hymn playing on his phone, and the words were on the screen. And while the call to prayer was ringing out. There we are on the hill, overlooking the city, singing, this is my father's world. It's always our father's world. It doesn't belong to anyone else. He hasn't given it away. And he's at work. And so as, we, and, and so as, this, as this thought uh, just built as we stood there, I, I imagined, it was sunset, but I, I imagined, you know, as Habakkuk says, I mean, this is another verse that's very prominent in my thinking when we travel. For um, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so as things seem to look more dire and, and there's more aggressive challenges to our faith in terms of uh, gender and all kinds of things, many, many different ways we are being challenged and we want to stand. Let's not forget that the sun is rising, the S-O-N is rising. And the, night, the light, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is being revealed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's thank God that as Psalm 139 says, that even darkness is as light to God. So when things seem dark, they seem overwhelming, we want to give up. No, it's, it's 
God is light. In him there is no darkness. So thank God for what he's doing. Thank for God for what he's doing in his church here and around the world in the most unlikely places. In the most unlikely places. You know, I love it when people say, somebody said the other day, oh, so-and-so, that person will never get saved. I always just smile to myself and I say, get him, Lord. Get him, Lord. That's like a challenge that the Lord loves. So let's not give up hope. Let's be encouraged. Let's stand strong. Let's be kingdom-minded. Let's embrace what's going on in our lives because God is at work to will and to do. And let's continue to serve him.